0: Today on Upstream, I'm joined by Lynn Alden, an investment strategist known for her unique blend of engineering, tech, and finance expertise. We talk about her book, Broken Money, and her reasons for writing it. We also cover the impact of the global reserve currency, inflation, interest rates, and her best advice in the face of an uncertain economic future. Here's Lynn. Lynn, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me back. Happy to be here.
2: Lynn, excited to deep dive into your great book, uh, Broken Money. How do you recommend? Why this book? Why now?
1: Uh, so it's, it's a good question because I, I resisted writing a book for a while. Um, writing a book is not a good ROI. It's time-consuming. It's tedious. Um, you, I only recommend writing a book when you feel like you have to write a book. Yeah. So That's the short answer for why I wrote it. Is that I, 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 enough pieces came together that I felt like I had to write it. Um, a lot of my you know, my, my content is very long form. It's, there's years of it. And when someone wants to access the content for the first time, I wanted to have a starting point for them. And also there's some things that are complex enough, like money and finance, where it really helps to lay out the whole thing at once to help someone get the big scope of it rather than little pieces here and there. And you know, so the, basically there's a couple key themes I really wanted to emphasize in the book. And I felt that uh, in, in kind of the macro money space or kind of the digital asset space. Um, there's, there's a lot of kind of a range of books out there. There's a lot of really good short ones. I wanted like a really comprehensive one, including one that has a little bit more of an academic uh, angle to it. Um, so that it kind of can, uh, you know, kind of confront some of the academic discussions around what is money a little bit more directly. Uh, and so that's kind of the short answer. I also wanted to take a global view of, of this whole phenomenon. Like, you know, how does this impact developing countries? How does this happen? You know, there's, there's not, in my opinion, enough emphasis on kind of the structure of how things work at the global level. Everything's kind of focused on one country, especially the United States, uh, or other countries they will be, they'll be focused on the local region. But it's like, when you actually take a step back and look at the 160 different currencies out there. And all the little kind of capital controls around them and how they tie into each other and what it means for like Africa to have 40 currencies and Latin America to have 30 currencies and all the frictions that that provides. You know, there's just like it's, it's there's there's very little literature on what's going on uh, in at that level. So I felt that it was the book that I had to write. Uh, it was distracting not to write it. Um, and the reception has been very good. And it's, it's it's you know, it's a lot of work, but it's the most rewarding thing I did last year.
2: Yeah. You've uh you've dropped some breadcrumbs for us to to deep dive in in, in this interview. L- let's start with the uh academic arguments. What w- what do you think you've contributed to the conversation or or where do you think you differ from some of the the sort of academics or, or mainstream conversation that they were happening about in academia about sort of you know academic understanding of of what is money.
1: So a couple angles. One is um there's, you know, there's big discussions to, uh, with different economic schools of thought around commodity money versus credit money, um, and so I wanted to kind of back up into the literature and kind of sim- synthesize those two arguments and see what they have in common. Basically, you know, you'll see people in the Austrian school of economics versus the More Keynesian or, or Chartalist school of economics discussing, you know, what is money, um, and what I generally viewed is that it's not just commodity money or just credit money. It's it's really that all these different things are ledger money. And the only person I really saw kind of make that argument in depth was uh, Vences Casares years ago, uh, mainly just in short talks, not in, in long-term literature form, and not to the kind of comprehensive extent that I think that that subject deserved. Uh, so that was one, is basically to, to kind of look at what all these different monetary systems have in common. Uh, And kind of the main way to synthesize that is to say that you know when you're trying to do a trade, if you're trying to avoid the frictions of barter, there are two main ways to do it. One is you can defer the transaction through time, right? So instead of trying to find things that I have a surplus in that you have a deficiency in while you have a surplus in something else that I have a deficiency in, instead, if if just one of us has something that the other one needs – you can defer that over time. So, you know, one person can do a favor either informally or formally that then they're owed back later. Uh, and so that's that time element. Or you find a, a, a unit that's so desirable that it can serve as one side of every transaction. And, to, and so you make transactions easier that way. Basically, everyone kind of starts naturally gravitating towards storing their surpluses in some sort of scarce, divisible, portable unit that is, has better monetary attributes than any other commodity or any other good in the region. And so those are kind of the two main methods. And a lot of times you see siloed arguments about which one is actually money. And so what I try to do is kind of look at both of them and see what they have in common, which is basically you know, people are always trying to figure out how do we make trade easier and how do we agree on what is what is the ledger? Like what is, what is savings and what is payments? And those are the two methods. The other thing I want to, really wanted to focus on was the role of technology for shaping not only what money is, but how we interact with it. Uh, so a lot of monetary history books you'll see a big focus on political decisions that happened. You know, such and such president did this or uh, this geopolitical thing happened and these, these two nations decided to do this and that affected this other nation this other way. And that's all important. But, you know, an, a, a thing I emphasize is that politics is like temporary and local. Um, so political decisions affect the timing of things. They can be reversed. Um, you know, they can become irrelevant in the long run, whereas a technological solution is global and permanent. You know, when someone invents refrigeration, that, you know, as long as civilization exists, that spreads everywhere and lasts forever. Um, It's not just this kind of temporary localized thing. And what we generally see is that over time, new technologies have just, not just in a local level, but at a permanent global level, shaped how we interact with money. And I felt that there was very little emphasis on the role of changing technology in monetary history. And maybe that's just my engineering background speaking that I'm like, why is no one uh, looking at it from this angle? And so one thing I was really grateful for is that my editor, uh, Joachim Book, uh, he is a, you know, he's got a master's in like uh, economic history from Oxford. So uh, he helped me fact check everything I was saying. He helped uh, dig up extra sources when he wanted to go into into a a certain subject in more detail. Uh, So he he brought some of the more kind of traditional um, historical chops to the book. Whereas I really wanted to focus on how does technology shape this? And I felt that that's just, it's just something that's it's woefully underexplored in in academia. Uh, and I wanted to bring that to the forefront. So those are kind of the main themes. And then just kind of, you know, in, in academic literature, you know, if you kind of separate the, there's, there's mass market books and there's academic books. Academic books are often really dry. They have like 20 people read them. Uh, and they often are, are purposely kind of not making strong arguments. Um Uh, It's just this more dry approach, whereas I wanted to kind of combine that where I wrote – I wanted to write something that has academic rigor to it but is still speaking to a mass audience um, and diving into real modern problems that people face. Like if you're in Egypt and you're dealing with 37% inflation, your money supply is growing by 20% a year, year after year after year um and you're you know kind of dealing with that environment what is that like and what are the solutions for you and what does it mean when there's dozens of countries with that type of problem uh so it kind of combines that historical element with okay what's actually happening now why are people kind of annoyed about this what are they doing about this what could they be doing about this so it it tries to kind of find a balance between those different types of writing and those different purposes
2: yeah that's that's well said and One thing you do early in the book is you you chronicle the rise and fall of different global monetary orders. What do you think is underappreciated or misunderstood about the history of some of these rises and falls that could give us some perspective on how we should think about uh, it today?
1: I think the biggest one is going back to what I said before, which is the role that technology plays. It's not just geopolitical decisions that affect things. It's how technology shapes what makes sense, what what incentive structures start to win, and and so I, a key part that I really emphasize is the invention of the telegraph and specifically the adoption of the telegraph. So prior to then, you know the te- there were kind of two paths of technology that really shape money. So one is you know the actual ability to make more money itself. So for example, in hunter gatherer times, grains or shells could be money. But in the industrial age, we know how to, you know, mass produce those things or, you know, harvest those things way faster, and so we can we can dilute them. And so, you know, over time, you gravitate towards harder assets like silver and gold. Uh, so that that's one kind of technological path. The other one, for lack of a better word, is almost like analog encryption. Uh, it's like how can proto banks and eventually full service banks uh, securely uh, and efficiently uh, exchange kind of legal ownership of, of underlying assets. And so even simple things like how can you make a, you know, the invention of paper, for example, and then the, the binding of paper in book form rather than scroll form, uh, those were literally technological advancements that we take for granted today. But at the time, they were anything but, you know, kind of taken for granted. Then things like uh, better inks or Analog encryption methods, like if I have a paper receipt, this is okay. This you know, XYZ is entitled to five ounces of gold. How do I make it so that that receipt is not forged? It's like I need some sort of analog encryption technique, some sort of counterfeit resistant technology. Then things like the printing press drastically lower the cost of some of these things. So all of that was important. But that generally happened over a multi-century period. The the really kind of big trend shift was the adoption of the telegraph in the second half of the 19th century, because that made it so for the first time, every other commodity money, all these other banking technologies, what they shared in common is that information still moved at the speed of matter. You couldn't send information from you know the UK to America or to India any faster than humans could get there uh, with ships, even even. Banking ledgers still could only move at the, at the speed of physical paper getting there. Uh, and what the telegraph did, especially once all those undersea cables and transcontinental cables were installed and started to be used and incorporated, was that you could update ledgers globally uh, at roughly the speed of light. And so for the first time, speed was a new variable. And that dramatically shifted who has the power here. Because if you're the one controlling the ledger for a big area, and you're connecting to another entity that's controlling the ledger for a big area, you know you're you're the ones talking at the speed of light. You now have roughly a monopoly status on on you know fast long distance value transfer, and so you you start to get to a period where these slower assets have to be increasingly abstracted and centralized in order for their claims to keep up with global commerce as it accelerates and moves around at the speed of light. Um, uh, you know, while, you know, say physical gold settlements in order to ship them, verify them, that's all a time consuming, slow process and expensive. Uh, and so that kind of shifted who who has the power here, kind of shifted things more towards banks, more towards central banks. And that really defined the 20th century, uh, in particular, and going, going into the 21st century. And what's kind of unique now is that, ever since the invention of Bitcoin and then extended it into things like stable coins and, and so forth, um, is that for the first time, you can you know, do actual settlement, not just transactions, but settlements uh, of value. And so you, know, you, can, you can transfer value to someone uh, without going through centralized ledgers. You can go around existing banking systems, around existing capital controls, um, peer-to-peer rather than institution-to-institution on behalf of peers, and so that just dramatically kind of realigns what the power structures are. Uh, but of course, even then, it takes time. I mean, it, it doesn't matter until liquidity and size is big enough, which takes you know years of kind of slow grassroots type adoption. And so that's kind of a, a big theme in the book, and is something that I think is just that whole technological path is so crucially important for. I mean, it's, it's obviously technology is important for any field we study. But it just seems like, especially in the field of economics and monetary history specifically, it's just it's it's very um, de-emphasized compared to the importance it plays.
2: And and let's say we're we're having this conversation in 2040, so 20 years from now. And we're reflecting on how sort of technological innovations and money, you know, you write a lot about crypto, have have reshaped sort of global finance, uh, or, or just how, how the world works in the same way that you just outlined how, you know, the Telegraph and other inventions ch- ch- changed how, how, how the system worked. Wh- what might you predict on some, you know, reasonably long timeframe, um, like, say, 20 years, uh, that uh, the technological innovations and money that we're seeing will be bigger than just, you know, that little... You know, some people getting rich, but actually affecting the the whole system. What what might you expect?
1: I think a big theme is uh, monopoly breaking, and so going back to my prior point, 160 different currency monopolies, and and the reason they exist is because of the technological limitations that they that got them there. Right. So, for example, let's say you're you're in a country, maybe it's Nigeria. Um, And you think, okay, how does money get in or out of Nigeria? There's really two main ways. One is physical ports of entry. So bringing bringing physical currency or gold coins through a border, through through an airport, which is obviously tightly controlled, easily to enforce. Um, You know, you see signs every time you go through an airport, you can't bring more than $10,000, for example. Um, And then the other way is bank transfers. Uh, But of course, bank transfers, banks are highly regulated, centralized, you know, kind of governed institutions. So there's all sorts of rules. Who can they transfer to? And also, who can I have access to you know, uh, currency in a given unit? So if I'm in Nigeria and I want dollars, if I want a dollar-based banking account, uh, it's kind of the government and the, and the central bank's choice, if that's even an option to me. Uh, and if so, how safe is it? Because this is basically an unlevered dollar bond fund with no direct access to the, the Fed or FDIC insurance, even if I am allowed to access it, or if I'm wealthy enough to access it. For example, some of these countries, you can only access it if you're Wealthy, Um, and so if I, you know, as an American, if I want to pay a Nigerian graphic designer for work, um, and we're going through our banking systems, you know, Nigeria can really determine what what currency they receive their money in because they they control the ports of entry and they they control the bank wires. Uh, So I could pay them in dollars, but it might hit their bank account in their local currency, which is. Devaluing and you know generally negative real interest rates and uh, just it's hard to save in it. Uh, and if instead they want dollars or they want Bitcoin, now there's ways with Bitcoin and stablecoin to go around that. You know she can hold up a QR code on a call just like this, and I can pay her around the banking system. Or she can send me a DM or an email, some sort of just string of numbers saying where to send the payment to. And she can either, it can either be fully decentralized if she's kind of a power user, or, you know, uh, a foreign hub, let's say a a stable coin in Switzerland could offer this service. This is okay, you know, it's centralized, but the central hub is not in Nigeria. Uh, And so it's basically like an offshore bank account for the masses, for the middle class, rather than just the wealthy. So depending on, you know, what level of decentralization or scarcity you're looking for, there's multiple options here. But the point is, there's competition between monies. At a global level, the, the kind of the blood brain barrier around these monopolies is slowly made more and more porous just because you can circumvent that. You can, you know, you can memorize 12 words and bring $10 million worth of stable coins or Bitcoin with you through an airport. So when you see the sign that says only $10,000 allowed, you kind of chuckle to yourself because you think, I mean, that's based on the premise that you can prove that someone doesn't have this other type of asset. It's just an antiquated analog World, so I think that that's probably the biggest factor is that it 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 creates more competition of money and and more I guess more broadly liquid assets. So even things like a tokenized treasury bill, for example, but you know just kind of liquid assets in general now have more global competition because they can pierce through these different borders way more easily than they could pre pre Bitcoin and and pre this this space. I think that's probably the and that you know that. Start small, but once the liquidity's big and once adoption's big and once it's normalized and once it's widely understood, that's I mean, that's disruptive that, you know, kind of that can disrupt who has power. Because if you're a government and you benefit from seniorage and let's say you're an authoritarian country and you make deals with the IMF, so you get all these kind of hard currency loans and dollars uh, and, you know, your people are kind of stuck in the local currency that you can keep printing more of and devaluing and siphoning their savings and devaluing their wages and funneling to whatever you want to funnel it to that starts to get disrupted because those people can start saving in, in other types of money that is not that centralized local money. And then that kind of more quickly depowers those people that are kind of constantly siphoning that money towards the top. And of course it's, I mean, that's like, you know, it, the reason I answer that for 2040 is because that's not a short-term thing. That's a very long, structural, network effect-challenging type of thing. That's a, that's a long-term, big thing. But I think over, over the long run, that is the biggest, or at least one of the biggest things that, he, that matters here, more than just a few people getting rich or more than what asset you can have in your Schwab brokerage account and, and things like that. We'll continue our interview in a moment after
0: a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to turpentine's industry-leading newsletters like our new daily ai newsletter emergent behavior or media empires you should but that's not what i'm here to tell you about the platform we use to power these newsletters is called beehive and it's excellent first of all it was started by the same early team who helped build morning brew into a 75 million dollar newsletter business and they built beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code Upstream. Visit Beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.
2: Well articulated. In, in continuing to introduce some of your your bigger ideas, and you know, nice segue from the idea of monopoly. One of the things you've written about is how uh, the global reserve currency that, uh, status that America has. Uh, creates some imbalances uh, with other countries. It's negatively affected our manufacturing. It basically, accelerated globalization, right? And and that has had effects on uh, jobs on, on this country. But you recently also wrote about sort of the impacts of reshoring, which which I'll hear you unpack as well. But then it also creates these um, these effects for other countries too, um, in terms of you know sort of the trade balances. It's never equal, um, and that can't sustain indefinitely. Um, Can you can you unpack that for the audience that that is unfamiliar and then also share, you know, what will change that or or, or what could change that?
1: Sure. So, you know, going back to my prior point, there's 160 different currencies. They can enforce local monopolies, but on the international scale, they've always had competition. Right. So why do I decide to hold dollars if I'm in country X, Y, Z rather than hold, uh, you know, kind of yen, for example? Uh, it, it's partially because of that global competition, that network effect. So back in the day, that common unit was gold. That that was kind of the underlying. Um, and you know, as speed became more and more of a variable, we started to abstract that. So for example, the British currency was, you know, it was, it was a layer two on top of gold. Uh, but it, it was basically this faster clearing, centralized clearinghouse type of thing that that you know ent- ent- entities could. Uh, you know, whether large banks or central banks or other kind of large entities could all kind of go through this this efficient clearinghouse to to store value, transfer value. And of course, after World War II, that shifted increasingly over to the United States. Um, and, you know, what's different about this era is that the dollar is free-floating, all currencies are. Uh, you know, they're not tied to gold anymore, even though central banks still use gold as, as kind of long-term collateral. Um, but basically, these currencies are free-floating, and whenever there is a money that is the, the network effect dominant money good, so it's, it's, the, it's the one that most people want to hold, it's the one with the most liquidity, it's the one where the most people are storing their savings in it, um, they give a monetary premium to it, meaning that they're, they're putting more emphasis on that than just its utility value. So in a world where there's a bunch of commodity monies and people realize that gold is the hardest one to debase, so they store their money in gold. That overall kind of gold market cap increases quite a bit because it 's not just the utility value of gold it's it's the whole monetary savings as well and on the global fiat currency stage, you know a, a typical currency like you know egypt's currency you know there's not really any external forces saving a lot of value in Egyptian currency so Egyptian currency is kind of trading at its like equilibrium value uh it's like utility value whereas a lot of countries around the world and a lot of even people around the world at the, at the black market street physical currency level want to store their value in dollars uh, and so that they give a monetary premium $2 uh, above their utility value. And so a lot of currencies trade, you know, real interest rates, uh, how, how, you know, that's a big factor that, that kind of makes more entities want to hold it or less hold it. Another big factor is how, how good the economy is doing, and what's the current account surplus or trade surplus look like? You know, if there's more, if they're producing more than they're consuming, uh, that's generally good for a currency. These are all things that affect like, like a utility value of a currency. What makes the reserve currency, in this case, the dollar, different is that regardless of what real interest rates are doing, you know, for the most part, regardless of what the trade balance is doing simply because it's the network effect dominant good. It's, it's what debt's priced in. It's what international contracts are made in. It's the largest, most liquid capital market. So many people are holding that currency or that currency's derivatives. Um, and what that's doing is that even as a trade uh, deficit develops, it doesn't really get corrected in a way that many other currencies would. And so, you know, the whole world demands dollars. And so the question is, how do those dollars get out to the world? you know, if all these countries are holding dollar surpluses, if they're all denominating their contracts in dollars, or at least a lot of them are, how do those dollars get out there? And the answer is structural trade deficits. They basically, they hold dollars so much that they increase the the value of them. And then the United States finds itself saying, okay, well, it's very expensive to make things here, especially low-margin manufactured goods. It's very expensive to make things here. Our labor is expensive, uh, our, our you know, kind of our, our whole supply chains become expensive. So we have increased import power because we're the currency with the extra monetary premium on top of it, but our export competitiveness is weaker, uh, and so we we kind of st- build structurally these trade deficits. And so, you know, the, the, we have constantly just dollars flowing out to China, uh, flowing out to Switzerland, flowing out to Germany, flowing out to Singapore, flowing out to Japan. You know, kind of shifts over time based on if it's industrialization or is it is it, is it is other types of goods or is it software or is it commodities? Basically, it's like dollars flowing out there. And that feels good for a while. And it feels good for those of us that are not really impacted by it. So if we work in, Government. If we work in healthcare, if we work in technology, kind of high-margin coastal industries, uh, you know, we're not really facing the impact of it, and we're getting the benefit. So we can go anywhere in the world; our dollars are accepted. We have a lot of import power. But if you work in manufacturing, or even adjacent to manufacturing, like you worked at a restaurant that served a manufacturing hub, for example, or a steel-making town, are uh, that those areas have generally been uh, kind of deindustrialized in a way because we're running these structural trade deficits in part because of how the currency system structured, um, and so that's the that's kind of the imbalance that builds up for decades. So when we when we look around the United States in particular, when we see a lot of political polarization. You know, a lot of it indirectly is because of that. There's more and more wealth concentration. There's more and more kind of segmentation between industries and kind of segmentation between. Kind of coastal centers and in, in kind of the middle of the country and a lot of that comes down to these multi decade imbalances that have that have been building in in large part because of the the reserve currency status and and that the structural trade deficits that it contributes to and I guess two
2: follow-up questions to that how, how much longer can this can this last or I, I think you predicted something where the the dollar will decrease as a percentage of of kind of global uh, trade um, you know, somewhat significantly. Um, and, and the other thing is you wrote recently about uh, sort of the U.S. efforts to to reshore and uh, build back some of that um, capabilities. Um, why don't you unpack your, your thoughts there as well?
1: So I think the, the main thing to watch, I think, is the net international investment position, because that's kind of the long term uh, accumulation of, of the effect of this. So basically, if a country runs structural trade deficits with the rest of the world, there's a couple things that happen. If it's old school and it's based on gold, basically what you're going to get is an outflow of gold from that country towards the surplus country. But of course, we don't really we don't rely on gold anymore. So what happens is our currency leaves the country, and then those foreign entities can reinvest that into our Assets. So, for example, if we run a very big trade deficit with China, they can buy treasuries, for example. That was a classic uh, uh, use case. Increasingly, they've been, they've been deciding to buy equities or real estate or private equity and things like that instead. And so basically what we're doing is we're selling part of our appreciating capital stock, our ownership in businesses, our ownership in real estate, our, our income producing long lived assets. We're selling ownership of that in exchange for current depreciating goods. Uh, and so the, the amount of American assets that the foreign sector owns uh, relative to the amount of foreign assets that American owns is now very lopsided. So back in the 70s, for example, the United States as a whole, whether it's government entities or whether it's you know, mostly it's private Americans, we owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned American assets. But because of accumulated trade uh, deficits, now it's the opposite. Now the rest of the world owns way more American assets than we own foreign assets, uh, to the tune of something like negative 70% of GDP, which is you know one of the most it's the most negative out of any large country, and it's the most it's the most negative in absolute terms, uh, one of the most negative in percent terms, and that's the thing that starts to become just eventually structurally impossible to keep going. It's hard to say exactly where that stopping point is, but it's not like negative 300% of GDP. It's like maybe negative 100% of GDPs, where you start to kind of run into that there's just not enough uh, fuel to keep that engine going. And we already started to see shifts ever since the global financial crisis. So for decades, foreign central banks were holding less and less gold and more and more treasuries. Uh, That started to reverse. So ever since 2009, they've been increasing their gold uh, tonnage uh, and there, and ever since this, about 2013 or so, their, their foreign assist, uh, central bank exposure to treasuries has kind of flatlined. So they're not like rapidly selling their treasuries, but they're not really accumulating them at the rate they used to. And so overall, it's just this gradual shift. Uh, kind of what led that was uh, China decided it was more their interest to do the Belt and Road uh, initiative type of investments. They want to take their surpluses and then go out and fund commodity deposits or fund uh, port infrastructure and things like that, rather than just keep buying more and more treasuries or U.S. stocks and things like that. Uh, and so over time, that kind of, in some ways, multipolarizes the world. Uh, then we've seen a couple kind of watershed moments, like you know Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, you know, and European uh, entities freeze Russian reserves. And then that forces them to re-denominate some of their contracts elsewhere, uh, accelerate their building of non-dollar payment systems. Uh, other countries see that and say, well, I want to reduce the tail risk that ever happens to me. Uh, and so they start making bilateral trade agreements. And this is, again, it's it's a very large network effect. But it's one of those things that quarter after quarter, year after year, it's starting to take shape. And we're seeing in general, the percentage of... Um, dollar based assets in foreign reserves is very slowly kind of diminishing the, the peak was around the year 2000. Uh, first the euro disrupted it a little bit but lately uh, you know some of the Asian currencies particularly China has been taking market share while Europe has been giving up market share. the United States is kind of flatlined or you know ever ever so slowly kind of inching down. so I think that partially technology and partially geopolitical incentives and partially imbalances, You're just getting a kind of a a gradual acceleration of all these kind of uh, non-dollar payment systems or the desire to hold alternative assets that are are less kind of heavily uh, invested in the U.S. And that, you know, that disrupts us at first. um, But I think in the long run, that helps us rebalance things. And I think that reshoring is one of those long term goals, but it's going to be very, very hard while you still have this current system in place. Uh, because as lo- as long as there's so much global demand for dollars, trade deficits are how those dollars get out there primarily. And if you're running a structural trade deficit, then pretty much by definition, you're not as, you're not reshoring as much as you, you'd probably like to. Uh, and you know, if anything, what's what's reduced our trade deficit to some extent is our oil production. Um, so we're less reliant on imports than we used to be, but our ability to physically make you know, machinery and industrial type of things is still kind of heavily impaired. We've seen, for example, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor wanted to, uh, you know, they're in the process of building U.S. facilities, which is a good thing. Uh, But then they found, okay, we have a, you know, we have a shortage of labor, like the right kind of skilled labor that that is required to make these, you know, various uh, advanced equipment. Uh, We have trouble finding the people to do that, because in addition to, you know, all the physical capital, there's just a deficiency in human capital because that's not what we've emphasized for decades. You know, if, if you wanted to get wealthy, you'd go work in Wall Street. You wouldn't go work in, in you know, kind of blue collar manufacturing or, uh, you know, kind of uh, having the best technicians in the world. You know, we have really good technicians, but not to the same scale that you see in China, Taiwan, uh, and, and kind of many other countries in the world. They've kind of built up that culture of manufacturing. And, and physical production, and that takes that takes years and potentially decades to gradually realign back to kind of national interests.
2: Yeah, well, uh, well, well articulated. Um, one of the other big ideas I, I took from you and your your writings is this idea that um, I believe something like fifty one out of fifty two times when a country has had a debt to GDP ratio uh, as high as the U S. Or, or over. Certain, maybe 130 percent or something like that they've had to inflate away uh, had persistent inflations in, in order to inflate away their debt and as a result uh, you, you predict that or predicted and I still predict that the US will will run uh, higher inflation than perhaps expected for for this decade um, we've seen um, interest rates come down uh, recently or, or sorry, uh, expectations of interest rates come down, which has led to, uh, a bit of a boom in, 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 tech and, and, and otherwise it was a good year uh, last year. I'm, I'm curious, uh, how you, uh, sort of think about that in context of your, your prediction. And then let's also get into, uh, just what is the, uh, your thoughts on interest rates going forward and how do interest rates intersect with inflation? You have a great post on, on that because, uh, a lot of people listening to this are venture capitalists uh, or people in technology, and interest rates—we've uh, we've discovered in the last few years—highly uh, impact our, uh, our our business.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So we've had we've had over four decades of structurally declining interest rates until they are—you know—they hit zero, they hit negative in some cases, um, and you know when you have ever rising debt to GDP, you know there was a lot of alarmism about that back in the 80s and 90s. But what they didn't anticipate is you would have decades of declining interest rates. You know, if you double your debt, but you have your interest rate, then your interest payments remain the same, especially relative to your growing income. Uh, and so you know, that, that's been a kind of a, a balanced force for a while. The problem is when debt as a percentage of GDP is still rising, but interest rates hit zero, bounce off zero, and start going even just sideways – uh, in, in kind of this more moderate band, then those fiscal deficits start to kind of get out of control. In addition, there is a valuation bubble in in some of those spaces. So, I, you know, back in 2019, I wrote about, about the bond bubble, uh, kind of emphasized it again in 2020, 2021, as kind of the early stage of this kind of fiscal injection started to play out. And, you know, the issue there is that when, when bond when bond yields get super cheap, it basically means that bond prices are very overvalued. Um bond proxies, like for example, utility stocks or defensive consumer staple stocks, they get very expensive. And then the other area that, that's really impacted is VC or in broadly any sort of unprofitable tech, including publicly traded ones, because you know they're, they've been in an environment where interest rates are so low. So the opportunity cost for, for usage of capital is, is low. And so people are, are very willing to monetize equities. They're saying, well, I'm getting zero return on my cash anyway, I might as well hold this long uh, duration tech play, even if it's got no clear sight to profitability anytime in the in the in the near term, because you know my my opportunity cost is is zero and getting devalued. So they they bid very high valuations, and what that does is that these companies can then issue a ton of equity uh, to kind of cover their losses and keep and keep operating their business. They can underprice their goods and services, and therefore. Uh, emphasize growth at all costs. And the problem is that if, there's, if, if it returns to that there's a cost of capital, that if you can earn 3%, 4 5% um, by holding fairly safe money or money-like assets, uh, the valuations you pay for these companies is lower, which uh, impairs their ability to cover costs by just more and more equity issuance, uh, which then means they have to try to raise prices and get a little bit more towards equilibrium, which then slows down their growth a little bit which then has a feedback loop of making the equity valuation even lower until it kind of right sizes to the point where it actually finds out, okay, what is the actual total adjustable market of this company if the prices are not artificially low be- because of the the expectation of just endless equity issuance. Uh, and so basically, it's, it's it's just that the magnitudes all get tweaked back in that kind of bond bubble that existed. And it's painful to go through a period to say, okay, what is, how can we separate the wheat from the chaff here? So what is... What was what what kind of companies only existed because interest rates were zero, versus which ones are still very valuable, but that might just have to be right sized a little bit in terms of valuation or growth expectations because they have to align a little bit more towards profitability and a little bit less towards just ever constant equity uh, uh, dilution uh, because of exceptionally high equity valuations. So you know that's kind of the the one of the more disrupted areas and it just kind of, it just changes the magnitudes of a lot of these things. And it's important, I think going forward that, you know, I think, you know, we're probably in a more sideways choppy band for interest rates. Um, there probably is a cost of capital going forward. And that makes it so that when you, when you model out what you can pay for an idea, it's just, it just changed the equation to some extent and adds a little bit more conservatism back into that because they're, it's not an environment where there's zero opportunity cost anymore.
2: Say more about the our uh, ability to um, curb inflation using interest rates. Either what have we learned, or or, or what you might you expect, um, and you know if you had to make certain predictions around inflation numbers or interest rate numbers going forward, what are your best uh, estimates or even frameworks for doing so?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So. When central banks raise interest rates to try to re- reduce inflation, there's two main mechanisms that they're targeting. One is they want more foreign capital to hold that currency. That matters more for non-reserve currency. So, for example, if Turkey is experiencing massive inflation, but their interest rates are very low, you know everybody wants to get out of the lira. No foreign entities want to hold the Lira because the real interest rates are negative. And so one of the ways to fix that is increase interest rates so that more people want to hold it and fewer people want to flee it, um, and then that can help stabilize it. So that's number one. Number two is that in most decades, most money creation comes from bank lending. So as banks lend, they, they create net deposits in the system. Particularly if they're lending at a faster rate than debts are being paid back, you know the the overall kind of the broad money supply is increasing because of that lending. And so one of the ways to slow down money creation is to slow down lending. And having higher interest rates, uh, you know, changes the borrowing calculus uh, and ability for borrowers to kind of take out money and service debt. So they're more judicious uh, with how much debt they take, and lenders are more judicious with you know, who they're willing to lend to and how much and compared to what asset values and things like that. Um, So that slows down money creation there. A big challenge, what makes this period different than the 70s is so back in the 70s, public debt was very low. And most of the, the money supply growth was coming from that bank lending. And so by raising interest rates sharply, it reduced bank lending considerably, even though it had other effects like increasing the deficit, for example. Well, when you fast forward to, you know, back then it was 30% debt to GDP. If you fast forward to now and you have like 130% debt to GDP, the problem is that, you know, bank lending is slower than it used to be, partially because of demographics and other factors. And deficits are larger than they used to be because of so much accumulated debts and all the interest expense on that debt. And so the problem now is when you raise interest rates, you do put some downward pressure on on bank lending. But the actual, the increase you get from deficit interest expense is larger. Uh, and so you actually risk not really slowing down money supply growth by raising interest rates. Um, and and so that's kind of the challenge that you can get to a, a point, and I don't think we're, you know, we're kind of flirting with that point now, which is that interest rates become a less effective tool for slowing down inflation com, you know, compared to what they used to be if you had low public debt and rapid bank lending. Uh, Instead, the large fiscal deficits are more at the core of why money supply is increasing. And the central bank tools are not really designed to deal with that. And the the, the highly uh, politicized political apparatus is not really well suited to, to, you know, kind of fixing deficits anytime soon. And so the risk is that's just like a background long-term thing that's here now. Um, And Measuring how it's going to be inflationary or not, I think really comes down to the rate of technological growth. If we're, you know, if if AI makes a bunch of services cheaper, and if we if we you know are constantly, uh, you know, kind of developing new commodity deposits and energy deposits, uh, and so we're not getting bottlenecks there, then we can keep inflation pretty low, and a lot of that money supply growth kind of goes into asset price inflation. So Nasdaq keeps going up, Bitcoin goes up real estate, you know, waterfront real estate goes up, all this, that's where, that's where the surplus accumulates. On the other hand, if the technology growth is not as fast as that rate of just kind of constant deficit monetization that tends to happen over the long term, uh, and especially if we're not, you know, kind of keeping up with energy and commodities, uh, then that's when you risk getting outright kind of significant CPI inflation. Uh, and so that—that those are kind of the two paths going forward, which is one... Industry rates are not really the anti- inf- anti-inflation tool they used to be. Uh, and so instead, it really comes down to you want to own real assets. And then when it comes down to which real assets you want to own, it's basically which ones are scarce. So if you, if you expect that energy capex is going to be tight, maybe you want to own energy stocks, for example. On the other hand, if you think that's going to be not a problem, then owning NASDAQ stocks or owning real, waterfront real estate or owning Bitcoin. You know those types of assets you want to own. By either way, uh, you know treasury bonds are likely not where you're going to make your great purchasing power in the years ahead because it's just this ongoing kind of fiscal spiral. It's like a slow motion. It's kind of what happens to emerging markets, just at a at a at a less extreme level.
2: When you get into disagreements with with your peers and 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 people who really get this stuff, what do you think are the most interesting disagreements? where you're actually not 100% sure and maybe there's some uh, some credibility to the the other argument. W- what do you think are some of the most interesting ones?
1: One of the biggest disagreements is kind of the source of, of money creation. Uh, that's not one of the ones that I'm really unsure about, um, but that has been one of the bigger disagreements. The, the area that I'm most unsure about is modeling a base case for the rate of technological growth. Um, and And so determining where you know, basically, it's, we're mathematically in a fiscal spiral, which is the deficits can be very, very large, uh, as far as the eye can see. Um, and raising interest rates just makes them worse. Uh, and when liquidity gets tight, central banks might have to monetize those deficits uh, to, to not cause a liquidity crisis in, in sovereign bond markets. So that's kind of the background problem. But then the question is. Where does that show up? And that goes back to my prior point of, are we going to have energy bottlenecks or not? Are we going to have bottlenecks in key metals? You know, copper, uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, you know, battery metals, uh, things like that. Or are we not going to have those? Um, What is the rate that AI is going to keep a lid on labor costs? You know, uh, it's gonna, you know, it's already doing things like making art way cheaper making you know uh uh research way cheaper and charting things way cheaper. it's it's obviously going to keep eating into things that were once expensive so in the prior decades you know we we had all this different equipment and one smartphone uh just kind of dematerialized and replaced a lot of that and so we're going to see some of that with labor in the years ahead especially white collar it's kind of white collars labor uh, their time to get kind of disrupted a little bit whereas historically a lot of the automation has been disrupting blue collar labor so now a lot of the white collar stuff gets disrupted that should keep a lid on prices and 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 wage and labor costs and things like that but the really hard part is to model what's the kind of annualized rate of that going to be relative to the annualized rate of money supply growth and that's the part that i i have the highest degree of uncertainty about other than knowing that, you know, kind of that, that monetary system itself is designed so it can only grow uh, and we can roughly know it's going to grow at a pretty significant rate. And just what is that technological offset going to be? And that's, I think that's still an open question.
2: Yeah. The, the other thing I've seen people disagree on with you about is sort of the, the, the impact of the debt or the implications of the debt or, or what we have to do as a result of the debt. Where do you think people have a misunderstanding or don't fully appreciate the, the nature of the debt or the implications of a, of a situation.
1: So I think that um, there's been a situation of the boy who cried wolf, which is that ever since, you know, the, the national debt clock went up in the late 80s. Um, Ross Perot ran the most successful independent presid- presidential campaign in the early 90s based largely on, on the debt and deficit. Um, and if you look at uh, a long-term chart, that was like literally the peak. They like literally timed the top for like interest expense as a percentage of GDP. Uh, and that's because you know in the, in the late 80s early 90s you had the fall of the Soviet Union uh, you had the ramp up of, of China opening up to the world starting in the 80s but really accelerating in the 90s and 2000s so we had this kind of rapid period of globalization so Russian gas connected to uh, German manufacturing and uh, uh, Chinese labor you know connected to Western capital uh, to, to add all these deflationary forces especially to manufacture goods around the world and to take an edge off of a you know it kind of we broke up the American unions and put downward wage pressure on them which again has obviously consequences but it was a disinflationary force and so those interest rates were able to keep falling for for decades more than anyone thought at the time and so you had higher and higher deficits and debt to GDP but lower and lower interest rates and so that debt never really became a problem and I think the lesson that people learned from it was debt doesn't matter and I think that's the the wrong lesson. So you have to make sure you have your math right. So as we enter a period where interest rates are now going, you know, let's call it sideways in a big choppy band for a period of time, let alone up, let's just say sideways, um, those deficits don't have an offset anymore. Uh, So the higher and higher deficits, higher and higher debt, uh, it's not being offset by lower and lower interest rates. And so the absolute debt levels and debt, uh, you know, deficit as a percentage of GDP starts to accelerate um and that's what i think is not widely understood and really the the kind of closest comparison in american history would be the 1940s which you know kind of no modern analysts were alive and adults at the time um so it's it's not in living memory uh it's only in the history books and so that's kind of the when people think of inflation they think of the 70s which again was a very different environment very different causes of inflation um and so i think that's that's the idea that debt doesn't matter is one of the things they get pushed back on which is that you know it's not that we're at risk of nominal default because we can always print the money it's it's basically what are the consequences when interest rates lose their effectiveness as a tool for fighting inflation or when there's clearly a fiscal problem with no end in sight and no uh congressional appetite or ability to address it uh and that's where you get almost like emerging market style kind of background structural currency issues, again, at a lesser extreme level, because it's not an emerging market, but it's that same kind of general concept, which is that you just have this ongoing background unresolved problem that actually starts to materialize in the present rather than be one of those distant future things. And, you know, how big that problem is, again, depends on, you know, how can we keep enough unity, unity to keep technology growing at the rate that we've been accustomed to, can we accelerate the rate of technology growth we can we can we can kind of mask some of those problems with that technological growth but then that starts affecting who benefits from that if kind of you know if a lot of the benefits kind of go to the very top then you get more and more political polarization so i think a lot of this feeds into things that we don't directly associate with the deficit things like political polarization things like deindustrialization things like wealth concentration all these things are kind of uh, indirectly tied to this kind of background problem that people, I think, mistakenly assumed is just not a problem at all.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's well said. So, gearing towards closing here, let, let's say that the what you've written about in your book and the, uh, what you've written about in your blog was universally understood and and agreed, uh, you know, by, by by all the people who matter, the the Fed, the sort of you know, central banks. Politicians, how would the world be different as a result? You know, what policies would be different, or what plans, or what strategies, or what would be the biggest uh, differences as a result of the world truly internalized uh, Lin Alden thought.
1: I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think that certain things are inevitable. That even if I if I could just do whatever I wanted, there are certain mathematical realities to the current system that are hard to address. And so I think that's it's basically the importance of when a technological disruption happens, the big, the worst thing you can do is fight against it and try to not have it. Just kind of pretend it's not happening or try to fight it. And what we generally see in, you know, let's put let's put aside governments for a second. If you look at blue chip corporations, they rarely disrupt themselves. They fight back on disruption, and and their goal is to die as slowly as possible. Which is, you know, they they kind of just bury their head in the sand and ignore it. And it takes decades to play out, but then they you know, gradually diminish to either nothing or, or something small uh, as they get disrupted. There are very few entities that are willing and able to disrupt themselves, even because the, it, it's painful at first, uh, but then it, it gives them, you know, kind of benefits in the long run. And so what I would say the number one thing is that, you know, software, the, that famous quote, software's eating the world. Um, and the latest thing that software is going after is like kind of the final boss, which is, uh, value transfer uh, and value storage. Uh, and so, you know, that's it's the banking system, it's, it's the governments that are in, intertwined with the banking system, not just our government, but 200, 200 governments around the world and 160 different currencies. And, and and how they're, again, going back to the early part of the conversation, how, how value flows in those monopolies and, and in between those monopolies, that's a disruption. Um, and so, the longer the governments kind of push back on it, the more they risk. Just you know, kind of their their country loses out versus countries that embrace it and say, okay, we want to embrace this change, we want to be part of it. Um, then they can have a leg up in, in kind of the the reconstructed era, whatever era's next, whatever transitions next. And so we've seen, for example, countries like India have tried to ban Bitcoin, and then like either you know, the, there's usually legal challenges inside because there is rule of law. And then they would say, okay, well, that's not actually legal uh, to do that. Or you see, you know, Nigeria cut off um, cryptocurrencies from its banking system for like three years, and it was completely ineffective. Uh, Nigeria had the highest, according to chain analysis, they had the highest uh, peer-to-peer volume of any country, um, you know, relative to their, you know, to their usage. Um, and you know, they had one of the highest overall adoption rates of the technology in the country. And so after like three years, the central bank is like, okay, we're gonna strike our prior complete ban and we're going to instead try to bring this back in and regulate it. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, in 2022, Argentina banned banks for you know, a bunch of banks were announcing they were going to get into offering crypto to their um, customers, uh, you know, especially Bitcoin, stable coins. That's kind of what's popular. But just in general, the ecosystem, they were going to offer it because there's demand for it. The government said, no, we're going to ban you from doing that. Uh, and they said all the normal things, you know cybersecurity, and money laundering, and volatility, and blah, blah, blah. But really, it's the peso had like 100% inflation, uh, and they wanted to slow down the exits. Uh, then in 2023, they even banned like fintech uh, companies, uh, like non-bank fintechs from offering uh, these types of assets. And so again, you have people go around it. They have peer-to-peer trading. They have other, other means of going around this, so you have very high adoption. Uh, and then they, they, they elect you know, an anarcho-capitalist um who then says okay people can use whatever money they want um uh you know we're going to start tearing down some of these restrictions uh and it's just it's ineffective to fight against it um and and so i think that's going to be you don't want to be on the losing side of technology you don't want to be the one that's pretending it doesn't exist or that wants to regulate it in the same way you'd regulate an old system or uh you don't want to be the one that just kind of makes it hard to flourish there uh, so you, you want the companies to be there. You want your population to be using it and holding it and knowledgeable on it. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably the kind of biggest advice I would give for countries, which is that you know technology is complicated. It's rough. We don't know the speed with which things take off. We don't know the you know the, for sure the direction that things take off. Um, but you know you don't want to stifle that. Um, kind of just usage of things you don't want kind of you don't want to constantly kind of trap people into that system and and try to just pretend the problem's not there because it it just makes things worse in the long run
2: yeah that's a great place to, to 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 wrap this podcast uh Lynn's uh blog is is online um on our on our website and the book is broken money i've uh learned a lot from it and and highly recommend it uh Lynn thanks so much for coming to the podcast as always and uh to until next time
1: thank you thank you for having me